You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. As, uh, as John mentioned, we're starting a new preaching series today in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, at New Life, it's our general practice to uh, alternate between the Old and the New Testaments. Sometimes we'll do topical series, but most of the time we, we just work our way through a particular book, and now it's Daniel. Uh, the book of Daniel is is uh, about, uh, at least the first part of it, is 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 about one of the lowest times in Israel's uh, history. Right, uh, Israel was, you know, had two kingdoms: the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was already gone; it had been conquered by the Assyrian Empire, uh, and now the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, with Jerusalem as its capital, uh, has been. Uh, taken over by the Babylonian Empire and its people taken captive and sent into exile, sent back into uh, Babylon. It is, um, it, it really is one of, uh, you know, one of the basement experiences of Israel's history. And, and that's really where Daniel opens up is, is the beginning of this um, Exile into Babylon. We're, so we're going to start right at the beginning, Daniel 1. And I'm going to be a little aggressive today and get through the whole chapter, try to get through the whole chapter. Uh, I'll read the whole chapter. Given the length of the reading, you, uh, I'm going to have you stay seated. Uh, this is just endemic to the genre here, right? We're now in um, Hebrew narrative. And Hebrew narrative is just, it just the, the passages are longer, unavoidably longer. So don't get too concerned. Yeah, I know so I can see some of you are doing the internal math. She last time Ted preached, there were like five verses, and it took him 45 minutes. And I'm kind of a, holy cow, we're going to be here till dinner time. Right? Uh, no, I, I, I promise that won't happen. Um, so Daniel chapter 1. Uh, Daniel is in the Old Testament right behind Ezekiel. Uh, you know, it's Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. This is God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the kingdom, excuse me, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. And of the wine that he drank, they were to be educated for three years 
And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. That's ancient Near East for fit. Uh, Fit for them was fat. Um, They were fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word. Let's, uh, before we unpack it, let's pray for God's assistance. Father, Help us now to hear and to understand this ancient history so that we can deal with our modern challenges. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when when they were exiles in Babylon, we know from Psalm 137 that the people of God kept asking themselves uh, one question, and that question was, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Psalm 137, if you want to look at it, is a, is a, is a poignant record of how it must have felt to be a Jew in Babylon, right? Hard to worship, hard to have confidence in God when, when everything... Uh, uh, that you knew is gone. Everything that you trusted in uh, is, is gone. When God seems absent. Well, you don't have to be like the Jews were, forcibly transported to a foreign country uh, to, to ask the same question, right? Um, 
a lot of us are asking this question in one form or another. I'll, I'll put it in my form. It's not as poetic as Psalm 137. But it's this. How do, how do you live and thrive in a culture that is increasingly toxic to your faith in Jesus Christ? How do you live and thrive in a culture that is increasingly toxic to your faith in Jesus Christ? That is a pressing question on, on us. Our, our culture's educational systems, marketplace values, sexual ethics, social policies, governmental initiatives, all of those seem to be coming together and conspiring and winning uh, against our faith in Jesus Christ. So what do you do? What do you do today as a follower of Jesus Christ? You're not in a foreign land, but in a way, we're exiles, aren't we? The answer to what you do is not, the, the answers are not obvious and they're not easy. Um, and Christians often get them wrong. And especially in the last couple of years, Christians, a lot of Christians have gotten them spectacularly wrong. Let me give you just a little historical background before we unpack this thing. Um, when Babylon became the superpower of the day, and it was, uh, it was uh, it was a, a feared superpower. Um, it conquered the Jews, Israel, in in two waves. I'd forgotten that. Uh, I was just thinking it was sort of one cataclysmic event, but actually, it was two. One was in about six oh five and BC, and another was about eight years later. When Daniel opens up, that's talking about the first one in, in around 605 BC. And, and it's then that, that, that he, he, um, Nebuchadnezzar came and just surrounded the city and, and uh, took the royal family, right? Took the king, took the royal family, took the temple vessels, the temple utensils, right? The, the gold and, uh, the gold instruments and utensils that were used in, in, the wor- in the worship of God in the temple. He took those. And he took, in addition, the professional and educated classes, right? Uh, of which Daniel was a part, right? He was one of those youths without blemish of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. This, these were the, the, the privileged classes in, in Israel. And, and so Daniel and his friends were part of that first wave of, um, uh, of exiles that, that, went to, that were sent to Babylon. A number of people stayed, were, you know, were left there. Eight years later, the, the, the Babylon comes back destroys the city, and takes into captive the rest of the population. So we're in that in-between time. The first wave is going to Babylon, and, and going with those people are some prophets. And, and the prophets are saying to these exiles, don't submit to Babylon, right? Do not, uh, do not live in the city. Do not do what they say. Pray against them, pray against their city, uh, oppose them uh, at every turn, um, 
right? This is, this is what they were hearing. Why? Because God is going to turn this around really quickly. God is going to uh, defeat Babylon and restore us to our homeland quickly. So don't, don't, uh, uh, don't uh, cooperate with the Babylonians at all. Now, word gets back to the great prophet Jeremiah, who's still in Israel, uh, is still in Jerusalem, that that's what these prophets are telling uh, these, this first wave of exiles. And, and Jeremiah has gotten a completely different word from God. And, and, and he knows that what they're hearing is false, and he's very concerned about what they're hearing and what they're going to do. So what Jeremiah does is write a letter. He writes a letter from Jerusalem to Babylon, to the exiles. Um, And we know what that letter said because we have a copy of it. It's it's set out in Jeremiah chapter 29. And I want to read to you just the first part of that letter. This is Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon, refusing to move into the city, uh, praying against the city, right? And, 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 and Jeremiah, instead of speaking the words of God, he writes the words of God. And these words of God that he writes down are two things. They are both revolutionary and extremely unpopular. This, this did not, you know raise Jeremiah's star as, as, a, as a prophet in Israel because he was giving them a message they didn't want to hear. Here's, here's how the letter starts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. Because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Perhaps a surprising message, certainly an unpopular one. You can imagine how a lot of Israelites felt. I mean, this is, this, these are the enemy. Um, and we're to seek their welfare. We're to pray for them. Our welfare is tied to their welfare. Not a message they wanted to hear. I'm not sure it's a message that Christians want to hear today. Right? Christians often err on the two extremes when it comes to dealing with a hostile culture. On the one hand, and this really isn't our trouble so much, it would be, I would, you know, largely maybe some of the, the more liberal um, uh, de- denominations. It's, it's to, you know, to uncritically accept the culture. Right, just unquestionably take what the culture uh, brings to you. Don't, don't, uh, you know, don't push against it. Assimilate to it. Right, that's one extreme. Uh, the other extreme is is to separate from the culture. Right, to to oppose it, to work against it, to pray against it, to 
uh, remove yourself from it, uh, right? Put yourself in kind of a, you know, a Christian silo where you're sort of protected and uh, from from the, the, the hostile influences of the culture. And God says both of those approaches are wrong. We know how God engages a hostile culture. You know how we know? We look at Jesus, right? Jesus came into the world and the world did not receive him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, right? Jesus Christ, the son of God came into our world that was overtly hostile to him. And so if you, we want to know how does God deal with the hostile culture, look at Jesus, right? And Jesus, of course, didn't uncritically accept everything that the culture presented. Had he done that, uh, he would not have been a controversial figure. He would not have been of any interest to anybody. He certainly would have been killed. The fact is that Jesus uh, stood against uh, many of the values of practices of the culture, and that's what got him killed. So he wasn't uncritically, you know, accepting. Jesus just didn't assimilate into into the culture. Uh, But at the same time, Right, he Jesus avoided the other extreme. Jesus didn't oppose, sort of uncritically oppose the culture either. Right, and and you think about it. I mean, in those days, there was probably he had probably much more reason to be, you know, in in full scale opposition to 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 Rome uh, as 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 an empire that was persecuting uh, uh, other beliefs and uh, putting. Putting believers to death, uh, uh, but but Jesus, you know, he didn't say, "Look, I'm going to we're, we're we're just all out for opposing Rome here. Anything about Rome, we're going to oppose. We're to pray against Rome." He didn't do that. I mean, much to the chagrin of some of his disciples, right? He encouraged the payment of taxes. Uh, he taught his disciples to love and pray for those who persecuted them to love and pray for their enemies he he said in his most famous sermon if a roman soldier conscripts you to carry his pack for a mile you carry it too see jesus was critical of the culture, but not, you know, but he didn't totally throw it out, right? He, he deeply engaged with friend and foe. He, he prayed for and healed friends. He prayed for and healed enemies. In the end, of course, I mean, he sacrifices his life to make enemies his friends, right? Even while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. That's the kind of deep gospel engagement that God is calling you and me to. You know, on the one hand, it's easy to assimilate, although that's not our issue. It's also very easy to be, to be just sort of knee-jerk, total oppositionists, sort of militant oppositionists. Uh, it feels good, feels right, but it's not what Jesus does. It's not what we see worked out here in Daniel. Um, this deep gospel engagement is not easy. It's not a formula. 
I wish it were. I wish I could give you a formula. Wish I could tell you and I'll give you, here's the things you can do, here are the things you can't do. It's not there. This kind of deep gospel engagement with a hostile culture takes faith, it takes thinking, it takes prayer, it takes wisdom, it takes grace, it takes commitment to truth, it takes sacrifice. Um, Daniel was written as history, but it, not just history. It was written for our instruction. And, and really, this is written to show you, as a follower of Jesus, how to survive and thrive in, in a culture that's hostile to your faith in Jesus. And that's where you are right now. And what this opening episode shows us here in chapter 1 is that one necessary, one super necessary element uh, in your survival and thriving in a culture that is toxic to your faith is to live in this hostile culture with a deep, practical understanding of who God is and how God operates. Daniel knew that. Daniel had, had that deep, practical understanding of, of God's nature and the way God works. And it affected everything he did. It affected his priorities. It affected his decision making. It affected where he would agree and where he wouldn't agree. Where he would go along and where he would not go along. That's, that's what we need. We need to, you know, have that deep practical understanding. Well, so, I, and this gives it to us. I, th- this chapter gives us four things about God here, about who God is and how God operates here. That, I, that you, as, if you're a Christian, you probably know, but you may have forgotten. Or you know, but you don't really live out. Okay? So, let's, that's what I'm going to do right now, just go through those four things quickly that this, uh, this episode shows us about God. First, God is faithfully sovereign. Now, both those words matter. Faithfully sovereign. If you look at verse 1, you get the historian's perspective, right? Or the journalist's perspective. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Right? That's like a history book or a newspaper. Right? It's, it's an observer observing and recording what happened. In verse 2, you get the theologian's perspective on the very same thing. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. The point that the author is making here in these first two verses is that um, God's in control, sovereign. And he's not just in control of your victories and blessings, but he's also in control of your defeats and troubles. I, I think a lot of people have a hard time thinking of God that way. You know, it's easy to think of God as being, you know, in control of my victories and blessings. It's, it's harder to think of him as being in control of my defeats and troubles, but he certainly is. God gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. 
This is all God's doing. What happened to God's people was not an accident. It wasn't a random event. It wasn't attributable merely to the fact that 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 uh, Babylon was, you know, a superior military power. It happened because it was God's will being worked out in God's way by God's power. And the same process is happening in your life right now, right? If, which, and that's good to remember. If you know, listen. If you're going to be in exile, if you're going to live in a culture like ours. That is, that is growing increasingly uh, hostile to your faith. It's good to remember that you're where you are because God has put you there. You're not an accident. Where you are is not an accident. You're, the timing of your life is not an accident. You know, God has, uh, you know, has placed you where you are just like he, he, he placed... Uh, Esther, right? When Mordecai told Esther, you know, for such, perhaps God has raised you up for such a time as this. And sometimes, as we see here in Daniel, sometimes it's God's will that his people lose power that his people lose influence, that his people lose freedom, that his people get moved to the margins of society. Sometimes God does that. Why? Why would God do that? Why wouldn't he, you you know, continually, uh, you know, bolster our power? Well, because, why? Well, you know, I mean, we, we know from experience. Because it humbles you. It refines you. It throws you back on God's unlimited power instead of on your own limited power. That's what God was doing. Daniel, that's what he's doing with us. But remember I said that God was faithfully sovereign. Right? Sovereign means he's in control. Victories and blessings, defeats and troubles, God's in control of all of that. But he is faithfully in control. By that I mean that all of this happens according to, what God, to, to God's promises. It's all happening as God said it would happen. There should have been no one surprised here when, when Nebuchadnezzar shows up and besieges Jerusalem that the people are taken captive and that the temple vessels uh, go, uh, or also go to Babylon. It's exactly what God said would happen. Deuteronomy 27 to 30, Leviticus 26, God, in those chapters, God says, look, if you're going to be unfaithful to me, I'm going to put you in Israel, but if you're going to be unfaithful to me, if you're going to be unrepentantly unfaithful to me, I am going to scatter you among the nations. And then, even more pointedly, fascinating story, uh, in Isaiah 39, um, Hezekiah was the king then, good king, and uh, Hezekiah worked closely with the prophet Isaiah, and Hezekiah was concerned about the Assyrian Empire, which was the empire before uh, before Babylon, it was the world power then, and and he and and he's trying to figure out how how can I protect Israel from Assyria, 
And Hezekiah, instead of trusting in God, relying on God, uh, does what politicians do, right? Um, you, you, You make a treaty, you know, you, you find a political or a military solution. So he courts uh, another up-and-coming power to, to, to enter into a treaty with Israel to, to, to combat Assyria. And that up-and-coming power that Hezekiah approached was Babylon. And they weren't the world power yet, but they were getting there. And... Um, and Babylon sends envoys uh, to Jerusalem, and Hezekiah receives them. And in his arrogance and in his desire to impress and, and, hope, and the desire to sort of ink a deal with, with these guys, uh, he throws open the doors of the temple and shows, him, shows the Babylonian envoys all the temple treasures, right? All the utensils, all the vessels, all the, all the wealth in the temple treasury. When Isaiah gets wind of it, he's... Furious, furious in the name of the Lord, and 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 pronounces God's word against Hezekiah. It says Hezekiah, because you did not trust the Lord here, but instead sought out human solutions in a military alliance. Uh, all those vessels, those temple vessels that you showed Babylon, are one day going to be sent to Babylon. Open up Daniel one. Here it is. It's, it's, it's all happening. So there are no surprises here. The bottom line message is that God is in control, sovereign, and that God is faithful to his word. But notice, that cuts both ways. He's faithful to his word of judgment. He's faithful to his word of discipline. He's faithful to his word of correction. But he's also, thankfully, faithful to his word of mercy and salvation. And whether you hear that as good news or alarming news really depends on what your relationship with God is, right? Have you repented? Have you turned to God? If you've repented and turned to him, his mercy and his covenant love will override his judgment. But if you have not, right, then you are still facing a, a, the, God's faithful word of judgment and it, you don't want to be there. Okay, that's the first point. God is faithfully sovereign. Second, God is humbly present. You know, humbly present. You know, it's significant that God didn't just send the people into exile, but he sent the temple vessels into exile. Right? He allowed those temple utensils, gold, uh, to, 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 to be sent to Babylon. But more than that, as it says there at the end of verse 2, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take these temple vessels to the house of his God, right? And place the vessels in the treasury of his God. That sent a clear signal. That was an unmistakable signal that everybody understood. And what the signal was, was it's not just that the Jews were defeated here. The Jews' God was defeated. That was the clear Message. This looting of the temple told the world that Marduk was greater than Yahweh. In fact, not, it didn't just tell the world. It proved to the world that Marduk was greater than Yahweh. Because no God would allow his temple to be uh, you know, 
plundered like that and have it, his, the worship vessels sent into the temple of, of a rival god. Marduk's the winner. All right? Now, think about that. You know, something's going on here that's pretty remarkable. God, God, the God of the Old Testament, was willing to be put to defeat, willing to be put to shame if that's what it was going to take to wake up his people and bring them to repentance. Right? That didn't have to happen, but God allowed it to happen so that his people saw that their God was, def- was, was in the eyes of the world, defeated. That their God, in the eyes of the world, was ashamed. You know, that's what you know, you're beginning to see there, right? That's the New Testament gospel pattern already showing up in the Old Testament. Think about the New Testament. Think about Jesus. Jesus was willing to be put to shame. Not just willing to be put to shame. Jesus was actually put to to shame, even to the point of being hanged naked on a Roman cross, if that's what it would take to save his people, and that's what it took. You know, it's a good reminder that as we try to survive and thrive in this hostile culture to our faith, that, that, that God isn't up there somewhere, right? Kind of comfortably removed from our challenges, you know, pulling the strings like we're puppets. No, that's not the biblical picture. God is humbly with you. Anything you are facing today, Jesus has faced first and worse for you. And for your salvation. You're not alone. And because of what Jesus humbly did in his life and his death and his resurrection for you, your good future is guaranteed. Okay? Doesn't matter what the culture ultimately does to you. Because of what Jesus did, and if you're hanging on to that by faith, your good future is guaranteed. So, God is, um, what did I say, faithfully sovereign. God is humbly present. And then thirdly, God is greater than any power or wisdom of the world. Let me unpack that. This is, this is where most of the text is about, right? Um, because God is greater than any power or wisdom of the world, God isn't afraid of it. God's not intimidated by worldly power and worldly wisdom. As we sometimes are. Right? We can be overly impressed by worldly power, worldly wisdom. God is not. Um, God is greater than that. God is the source of all wisdom. Uh, and God simply used... God, worldly power and wisdom is just another tool in God's toolbox. God uses worldly power and wisdom for his better purposes. Right? He can take worldly power and wisdom that is otherwise arrayed against his people and turn it to his good, pleasing, and perfect purposes. 
and, and because of that, we don't have to be intimidated or afraid of it. Um, think about Daniel and his three friends here. Um, they're under the individual sovereign control of God, right? He, God doesn't just work in the big movements of history, results of wars and movements of people. He's, he's sovereign over Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. He's behind the choice of these young men uh, to, to go to Babylon in the first place. He's behind the choice of them uh, being given a full-ride scholarship to the University of Babylon, right? Three-year uh, degree program where you come in Babylonian studies and you come out of Babylonian. Full ride, room and board included. God was behind their getting admitted into that program. We're told in verse 9 that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the eyes of his Babylonian superiors. We're told in verse 17 that God gave them learning and skill in the programs that they were learning, in the, in the literature and wisdom of the Babylonians. And, and friends, you know, to, to get a sense of how countercultural this is, I mean, the literature and wisdom of, of the Babylonians were the dark arts. Right, this is astrology and divination and and black magic and spells and uh, you know omens and all, all these things that were you know back in those days there wasn't really any a, a neat division between science and pseudoscience and these things were all kind of together um, and the wise men of Babylon were the ones that were that were, uh, had mastered these, these things. Th- these, this is what he was taught. This is what God was causing these four men to excel in. You know, practices that were forbidden in Israel. They're learning, they're excelling in. Um, and, and he gave Daniel in particular uh, this, uh, you know, uh, particular understanding and insight into dreams and visions so he could interpret those. And, and as a result, verse 20, right, tells us that, that, that it was Nebuchadnezzar's judgment that these four men were ten times better than the magician, all the other magicians and enchanters in Babylon, which shows you how he considered them, right? They were just, you know, they were magicians and enchanters, just like my other magicians and enchanters. Except these guys are ten times better. They're ten times better because God gave them the learning. God caused them to excel in this, uh, in this program. Um, listen, they obviously had a sense, like Esther did, um, that, that, that they were, God was placing them here for a at a particular time for a particular purpose. They, they had to have known that, um, that, that God was positioning them, you know, in positions of influence in Babylon, um, which is why you don't see Daniel objecting to a lot of what was happening to him and his friends. You know, they were renamed. That's a pretty big deal. 
You know, names for the, for, in, for the Jews were a big deal. Uh, and every one of those, their names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all contain within the Hebrew name a reference to, the, to God, uh, either Elohim or Yahweh. And, and uh, they, they mean different things. And when the, the Babylonians come along and say, no, that's, those aren't your names anymore. Here are your new names. And all the new names that they were given actually have no references to the Hebrew God, of course, and, but do have references to the Babylonian gods. So by the names they were given, they were now being explicitly identified with the Babylonian pantheon. Of, of false gods and not a word of objection from Daniel interesting um, even more interesting not a word of objection about their you know their course of study the curriculum in, at the University of Babylon I mean if that were today there'd be a sit-in right I refuse to go to class I want a more fat, fair and balanced curriculum Right? No. Uh, there's no. There's no hint that there were that he objected to to being enrolled in this program. He participated in it. Obviously, God was causing him to excel in it. Um, you know, if God wasn't afraid of what they were being taught, then they didn't need to be afraid either. But Daniel does get around to objecting to something, right? And it's, and, it's the, and it's food. And I don't know about you, but for me that was, you know, I kind of scratched my head. I, you know, of, the, of all the things, that was probably to be the last one I'd object to. Because I have a selfish interest, you know. It sounds like it's probably pretty good food the king's eating. Why would I object to that? Uh, right? But, but, I mean, actually, I, I think... You know, on substantive grounds, I would have just I probably objected to, to that they're renaming me, objected to this forced indoctrination program. Nope, none of that. But he does object to the to the royal diet. Now, friends, a lot of academic ink's been spilled on you know why Daniel objects to the royal diet. I'm not going to get into all of it. It would take hour. Uh, but at the end of the day, I I believe the reason is straightforward. You know, eating in the ancient Near East culture was a big deal. And, and we, we, there's still kind of an analog in our own culture, right? If you say you know somebody, that's one thing. If you can say, yeah, I know him, and, and yes, I've had him over to dinner, or he's had me over for dinner. Or, you know, we, we eat, you know, we, we, we share a meal occasionally. I mean, that immediately signals, right? That you know this person at a much deeper level. That there is there, that you've ratcheted up the friendship. Uh, if 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 eating is a part of your uh, relationship, well, th- that if that's true in our culture, it was m- really true in in Babylon, right? Eating with the king, eating at the king's table, which is essentially what he would have done here, w- would have implied friendship with the king would have implied loyalty to the king. It was, it was virtually a covenantal act, right? You're like, you know, I'm, I'm, we're, we're coming together and, and, we're in this, and we're in this together. And, and 
seems clear that Daniel was not willing to place friendship and loyalty to an earthly king above his loyalty to the true king. You see, Daniel had to know as a student of the scriptures and as, as, as one who probably heard Isaiah preach, right? That, that, he, that he knew that one day his destiny was eat at a different table of a different king. The king we now know as King Jesus. In Isaiah 25, Isaiah says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For thus the Lord has spoken. And you could hear echoes of revelation in there, right? That's, that's talking about Jesus, right? That's Jesus' table. Daniel didn't know his name was Jesus, but Daniel knew that there was another table and another king to come. And so when, by refusing the king of Babylon's food, in faith in God, Daniel and his friends were giving God room to work so that the success they achieved in Babylon could only be attributed to God and not that king. Okay. So you see now why Daniel, how, how Daniel shows us that, right, it's uncritical acceptance of the culture isn't right. Right? Had Daniel uncritically accepted everything that the Babylonians were throwing at him, he'd been lost to history. He would have been assimilated as surely as the Borg in Star Trek. Nerd alert. Right? The, the Borg who walk around and say, resistance is futile. Resistance is futile. It's kind of what the Babylonians did. Right? And, and the Borg assimilate you into their mind hive called the collective. That's, that's what that, they were trying to do with Daniel. And that's what would have happened had he just uncritically accepted what they were throwing at him. But Daniel also shows us on the other side that, it, that total, uncritical, sort of knee-jerk opposition to everything Babylonian isn't right either. That's not what he did. It's not what Jesus did. I know I love the way how Ralph Davis, theologian Ralph Davis, put it in his commentary. He says, Daniel was not one of those people who believe that firmness of principle always involves acting stubborn and pig-headed. You can be firm in your principles. You don't have to be stubborn and pig-headed about it. And Danny wasn't. He was wise. He was discerning. He was uh, he was uh, open to compromise. He was accepting of some things. He was in faith rejecting other things. Right? Friends, we don't have to be afraid in the midst of this hostile oppositional culture we're in. God's not afraid. 
And, and God is, is likely using you here, just like he's used Daniel within the hostile, hostile culture itself. He's, he's using you, raising you up to be a credible, effective witness of the reality of the love and the mercy and the salvation of Jesus Christ to people who would otherwise not hear it. People who won't walk into this church. But you deal with them as you live in the culture. As you in deeply engage the culture. Right? Um, going back to Ralph Davis again. I love this line. And, and I'll illustrate it. Sometimes God may allow hardship to reach us. Because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. Sometimes God may allow hardship to reach you because he wants his mercy to reach beyond you. I love that line. When I thought about it, I thought about the Israelite slave girl in the story of Naaman. You may may have remembered that story. Naaman was a general in Syria, uh, enemy of Israel. And uh, he used to lead raids as a general into Israel. And, and he would kill Israelites and he would take Israelites captive and make them slaves back in Syria. Well, on one of those raids, he takes a little Israelite girl, rips her from her family. We don't know what happens to her family, but they're gone, killed or sold off themselves. And she's taken back to Syria and she's made a slave in the house of the general that was responsible for ripping her family apart. She's a a slave in Naaman's house. We don't know her name. There's just a couple of lines that refer to her, but she's the hero of the story. Because Naaman, the Syrian general, general, uh, of course not a believer, uh, contracts leprosy. And, And when he contracts leprosy, this Israelite slave girl does not do what I would almost certainly have done, which is, you know, under my breath say, yeah, serves you right, sucker. You know, I hope your nose falls off. Right? She didn't do that. She, she was unbelievable. She, she, she said, Oh, if only my Lord could, could get to, to Elisha in Israel. And because Elisha, the man of God, would be able to put him in touch with God and God could heal his leprosy. And, and through her, because of her, that happened, right? Naaman got connected to Elisha. And, and through the ministry of Elisha, Naaman becomes a, not only healed from his leprosy, but he becomes a believer, right? All because of that Israelite slave girl who was ripped from her family. We don't know her name. Sometimes God may allow hardship to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. That's happening to you guys right now. Uh, This isn't a formula, like I said. I wish it were. I wish I could give you the recipe for this kind of living. But it is a call to wise, unafraid, discerning, patient, thoughtful faith in a big God, 
A God much bigger than we often think he is. A God who's unafraid to put you, if necessary, in uncomfortable, difficult, hostile situations. Remember, we are, we are people under control. It's a hard calling, but that's who we are, people. Right? We're, we're, we follow Jesus. We are people who are to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow him. We're the religion of the cross, after all. It's a reminder, too, that we've got to give each other a lot of grace and a lot of acceptance in the decisions we each make as we go about this deep gospel engagement with our culture. Uh, You know, we're going to be making different decisions. We're going to be making different calls because wisdom's involved. And, you know, and wisdom involves particular facts and situations. I'll give you an example, right? Some Christians in here choose to educate their children in the public schools and in public universities, Some Christians in here choose to educate their children uh, in, in other options. Daniel shows us, clearly establishes that any of those choices can be the right ones for followers of Jesus. And we need to extend grace and understanding to each other in these situations. Let's not let our zeal against the evil and the opposition against us cause us to refuse to work with what God works with. To keep the main thing the main thing. Finally, fourth, and this is quick. He's the preserver and sustainer of his people. God is the preserver and sustainer of his people. This is verse 21. Um, it's almost a throwaway verse at first. You think, you think, what's the big deal? Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What's so important about that? Well, it's, in one verse, it's talking about 70 years or so, right? So he, had a long, he was an old man. He had a long and fruitful uh, ministry and life. Uh, but the real significance is the mention of King Cyrus, because you, you kind of got to know the history, right? King Cyrus wasn't just the next in line after King Nebuchadnezzar. King Cyrus was the king of the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire is the empire that came along and knocked off Babylon, right? So, so in the course of just one chapter, the very first chapter of Daniel, we, go, we start with, this, with the vaunted Babylonian Empire, Right? The world power, right? Controlling uh, the the world stage, vanquishing Israel, abducting uh, their people, assimilating their people into their empire until the end of the same chapter, the the Babylonian empire is gone. It's gone. It's been defeated. It's been vanquished by the Persian Empire. And now Cyrus uh, is on the throne. But Daniel's still standing. See, that's, the author's brilliant here. I mean, this, this is, that's the message. And C.S. Lewis picked up this message in his Way to Glory essay, right? He said, nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to yours as the life of a gnat. 
Again, we've got to get that perspective. We, we look at the United States, we look at the Soviet Union, we look at China, and we think, oh man, powerful. You know, what are we going to do? Ah, next to you, they're like gnats. They come and go. Um, because of what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection for you, if you believe in him, if you're trusting in his life, death, and resurrection, you will never come and go like civilizations come and go and nations come and go and cultures come and go. You will not come and go. You will not perish. What you're dealing with now will be far away in the rearview mirror. And at the end of the day, all the hostile forces will be gone and you will be standing with Jesus forever. That's our confidence, friends. That's our destiny. And that is our power source for living in this hostile culture. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the gospel in the Old Testament. Thank you that you were willing to be apparently defeated and put to real shame. Uh, on the cross so that we could know you and live with you, know your forgiveness and know your love. Um, Lord, we're, we're living in a hard time right now. We're, we're all on edge. We're, we're on edge with each other. Uh, we're, we're divided as, as families. We're divided as churches. We're divided politically. Um, there's, there's, there's a distinct lack of grace and understanding among us, Lord, as just under the pressure of, of the culture that is taking away so much or challenging so much of what we value. Help us, like Daniel, like Jesus, to be wise, to be discerning, um, to be... Not assimilationists, but not knee-jerk oppositionists either. Help us to be just thoughtful engagers, right? Unafraid, knowing that you're with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.